in April last year has decided to now reinterpret uh, Article 9 of the Constitution, which, as I suppose many of you know anyway, uh, if you uh, interpreted this, this literally, of course, would basically even uh, prevent Japan from even having an army in the first place. But of course it does have one. Uh, and this interpretation, of course, has to do with the right of collective self-defense, uh, which, at least up to this point, uh, has usually been excluded, uh, or the interpretation, at least, of the Constitution was that while Japan can have an army to defend itself, uh, Article 9 of the Constitution doesn't really give Japan the right for collect collective self-defense, so in some way getting involved with other troops uh, with other forces uh, to protect Japan. Uh, another uh, key word that for anyone who is following Japanese policy to some degree is of course this uh, kind of proactive pacifism, a very Abe, Abe uh, administration, uh, especially for, for anyone, you know, if you, uh, well, so many of you of course don't understand Japanese, so pacifism and then proactive and you wonder what is that how can you be even more pacifist the proactive pacifism which of course is as you as some of you might know really a negation of of, of the real core meaning of, of pacifism uh, another development that might have remained a little bit under the radar screen is that japan also last year decided now to allow the the sale of weapons which of course has been an issue uh, or has been prohibited or considered to be prohibited for a long time so that Japan would not be involved in uh, selling any of its weapons and all the weapons that are used by the self-defense forces are basically homegrown or bought from the United States but not sold abroad and that is changing now as well uh, and I will probably come back to, to some of these points later on. Uh, the other debates have been going on even you know, in recent weeks and months about renaming the self-defense forces into a self-defense army um, um, modernizing Japanese defense equipment has been very high on the agenda, so the Japanese are buying a lot of new equipment, uh, developing new equipment uh, with other forces. The United Kingdom is very much interested, of course, with uh, collaborating with the United States, with sorry, with Japan uh, more, and has been starting to do this. And I will come back to that point later on a bit as well. Uh, and then the final point, I think, which is kind of encapsulate a little bit why I'm looking at the counter-piracy mission uh, is the deepening and diversification of security partnerships, right? Obviously, when you first look at Japan and Japanese security, of course, the first thing that comes to mind, the first thing that you study is, of course, the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. This is the core element of Japanese security. But in the last couple of years, uh, not only since Abe, but especially uh, since the Abe administration took office two years ago, uh, the intensification of partnerships with countries like Australia, India, uh, with the EU to some degree, with NATO, and within the EU, particularly the UK and France. Okay, I'd like to talk about, so this is the, the, the broader picture of, of Japanese security developments in recent years, uh, and of course there are a few others here as well, but I'd like to focus on one specific issue that has become, or did become, a bit more prominent uh, in uh, the mid-2000s, 2006, 2007. And this is, of course, one problem that Japan has and shares with a few other countries, and that is, of course, its dependencies on uh, safe uh, right of, pa uh, of the, the passage of, of ships, in this case, through the Red Sea, to the Suez Canal, and also through the Persian Gulf, 
because Japan, as far as, especially as far as uh, uh, energy is concerned, is heavily, of course, energy dependent on energy, mostly about 90% coming from the Middle East, and other goods, of course, coming into and, and sending into Europe, of course, going through the Red Sea. So this uh, line here, especially the Gulf of Aden, um, has been, of course, or the security of the Gulf of Aden, and basically the, the holding uh, uh, lines, of course, is very much an in interest of Japan. And uh, in the last couple of years, um, no, this, this is the one, right. Uh, we have seen, especially between 2007 and 2009, a sharp increase of piracy attacks. Um, and um, uh, this has triggered a uh, response from uh, a large number of countries. Maybe altogether over, over 30 countries uh, have sent troops uh, to uh, the Persian Gulf, sorry, to, yeah, to the Gulf of Aden and the coast of Somalia. But the, the tricking or the, the ticking, uh, the trigger event basically is this massive increase here. But at the same time, in this period between 2003 and 2011 at least, uh, you had a decrease of piracy attacks in Southeast Asia. So this is uh, 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 in the area close to, to Singapore or the uh, uh, Straits of Malacca, of course, which has been the, you know, more of an interest uh, and has been more in the news for a long time uh, before that. Uh, this is a graph here of, of incidences uh, off the coast of Somalia in 2011. Uh, not all of those, are, of course, are ships that, that were, were pirated. Some of them are attempted attacks. Uh, in some of these cases, in the orange one, I don't know if you can, can see them, some of them boarded or they have been fired upon. So there are different levels of intensity, of course. But of course, for anyone who, for any ship owner, for those sailors on the ships, of course, this is really an issue of concern uh, and something that Japan, or so that countries that have uh, ships in the region have to do something about. And indeed, Japan was uh, involved in this as well. Uh, this is a list... Um, it looks a bit different here on, on PowerPoint. But anyway, um, of, of uh, Japan's, uh, or in the involvement of Japanese ships, um, beginning in 2007, the Golden Mori and uh, Takayama and a couple of other ships here, uh, some are owned by Japan. Uh, very few, the Takayama uh, is, I think, the only one in this that is actually flagged by Japan. So it's very, one of the problems, if you look at the, the security of the International Sea, is that many of the ships that are owned by Japanese companies or many of the ships that actually transport goods that go from or to Japan are not actually uh, not even owned by Japan or they might be owned by Japan but they're not flying under Japanese flag which is of course and I will talk about this in a moment an issue when it comes to collective uh, uh, self-defense or defending these weapons these ships so in some of these cases you can see here, there's, they have just been approached, obviously they've all been approached, some of them have been shot at, a uh, few have been, there have been hijackings actually, um, but in, in none of these cases actually was ever a Japanese citizen involved. So these ships are owned, some only one is actually owned by, uh, or all of them are owned by Japan, only one is on the Japanese flag, but none of them has actually any Japanese on board. That's a problem. That's a problem for Japan that has an Article 9, of course, because how can you protect a ship that's owned, but where it's not a Japanese uh, 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 citizen actually on board that you might have to protect? Uh, two cases here, uh, of course, this happened a few years ago, so this is obviously no, uh, no longer in, in recent memory, was the, the first one, the Golden Mori, which was 
uh, which is a Japanese-owned ship on the uh, flag of Panama, so one of these, these, these uh, usual suspects of, of countries that uh, have ships under the flag. It was hijacked near Yemen by Somali pirates, and then they demand, demanded a one million ransom, which was then and paid by Japan, and the vessel was later released, and no one was actually injured. So this is a Japanese-owned ship, uh, and the second one is the uh, Takayama was a ship on the Japanese flag, this was actually just approached, pirates fired upon the ships uh, a, few, uh, a few times, but none of the crew has actually been injured, and then the ship could actually, uh, they, they uh, 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 informed the authorities with a distress call over radio, and then the pirates eventually then they moved away. So not, no Japanese was harmed uh, in this context. So uh, this is the, the context, so to say. So there is a problem in Japan, Japanese, own ships uh, are involved, but the number is actually relatively small. The problem is more really ships that bring goods from Japan or, uh, or to Japan. Um, the, the outline of my talk is a little bit, you know, the maritime problem that I just uh, summarized a little bit here. Uh, but it's the uh, deployment of the uh, Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Forces to, to, uh, and the, the quite significant, uh, significant actually of the uh, Japanese Coast Guard, which is JCG stands for Japanese Coast Guard. Uh, the legal issues, the legal problem for Japan uh, with the counter piracy law. Uh, the significance uh, that this has triggered, the significance of closer collaboration of, of the Japanese government, but also Japanese forces with other forces in the region. This is really what interested me most. This is not a talking about piracy and how, how to deal with this, really. What really interested me in this issue is that this is almost the first event where Japanese troops have been sent abroad not for a UN peacekeeping mission, not for a simply humanitarian mission, but for a mission that is at least uh, potentially uh, conflictual and, conf and potentially might involve Japanese shooting at some of these pirates, potentially at least. So not combat in, in the classical war sense that Japan is fighting against another country, but the closest that Japan or Japanese troops might come to the point where they might actually have to use their weapons and where they're working with other forces, non-US force in particular, right? It's common that there have been exercises with the United States, but as a European myself, I was particularly interested in looking at now Japan since 2009, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Japan is working with other troops on the ground for an extended period of time. How has that changed uh, the, the self-understanding and the uh, recognition of the Japanese outside of Japan, so in Europe, for example, and also the, uh, a certain level of pride, maybe, of the maritime self-defense forces themselves? Uh, what regional effects that had, what a domestic effect that had on Japan, so kind of you know, feedback effects on Japan, and why Japan is so involved. So these are questions, and I, some, not all of them might make sense right now, so I will talk about these issues, why Japan has been so in, involved in this. So, um, and, and this is really uh, one of the questions that started this research, is why has Japan become one of the most active and engaged actors in counter-piracy of the coast of Somalia, because one might, I mean, one argument in favor of that is obviously, yes, there are all these Japanese ships, but very few actually owned by Japan or there are Japanese on board. For that matter, yes, it's understandable, but on another level, one could say this is really far away from Japan, right? It's a long distance away. It's not, 
in any way an attack on the Japanese mainland. It's not Chinese or North Koreans. It's something completely different. Um, and, you know, the obvious answer is, of course, the insecurity of uh, uh, sea lines of communication, SLOCs. So it has something to do, of course, with national security, which also makes the counter-piracy mission different from all other missions where Japan has sent troops abroad. There were either UN peacekeeping operations, which have nothing to do with Japan's domestic security, of course, because you want to help others, uh, or a refueling mission, which is basically helping others in so-called rear area support missions in the Indian Ocean, for example. But where Japan is really in the back helping others, but it's not a direct, you know, it doesn't have anything directly to do with Japan's national security. In this case, it does, far away from Japan, but still it does because it has, it has a direct repercussion on uh, Japanese trade. It has direct repercussions on Japanese energy security as well. In a way, although they started in 2009, so there was an uh, LD, so decided under an LDP, the last LDP administration before they lost the election, was still an LDP under 2009, not Abe, obviously, um, in 2009, but in a way, still a concept, a proof of concept of maybe collective security. We can work with others, not just with the United States, where we kind of have to, in a sense, right? This is more voluntary. In the United States, right, well, they protect us, so you know, we have to do something for them once in a while as well, like refueling. This is a little bit different. Uh, this is a bit voluntary. This is actually, we do this for us, right? This makes it characteristically a bit different. Uh, now, of course, in the last two years, you can interpret this as an element of Abbas' proactive pacifism, which I mentioned before. Uh, and finally, one could also assume as possible answers or assumptions that has to do with Africa, the important increasing role of Africa for Japan. Uh, this is off the coast of Somalia, of course, which is not in Africa, but of course Japan has been, become increasingly interested and active on the African continent in the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, um, and I mentioned here one issue which oftentimes is brought forward, which is the, uh, UN, so the UN Security Council vote, which was in 2004, with Japan and Germany and Brazil and India also uh, basically lost. Uh, and Japan, of course, is still interested, and Abe mentioned that actually uh, last year when he gave a talk in front of the, the UN General Assembly, and he talked, this idea of Japan having a permanent seat in the UN Security Council is back. He definitely wants to like, like to have that. And for that to happen, whether that happened because of a possible China veto is another issue, but at least he needs the vote from Africa, and so this could be another reason. So, um, what is Japan's response to uh, the uh, piracy uh, problem, or the increasing problem that I just uh, explained? Um, one is military, and I will talk about this in a moment, but it's not only military. It's not only military. It's also political. Uh, it's financial. Japan actually gives a lot of money, and I will talk about this in a moment. Uh, it's building capacity for, uh, for to train uh, coast guards, to train soldiers in, in the region, especially maritime forces in the region. Uh, and it's also judicial, in a sense. It has to do with legal, setting a legal precedence and building legal, a legal framework in some of these countries. And I will talk about those in a moment. But the point here is it's not only military, it's not only sending ships, but I will start with, with that. So um, uh, there's a longer history to that, actually. Um, and I would just, uh, the lines don't show up. So the, the real employment only, deployment of Japan only starts in 2009. Uh, but one of the 
um, uh, additions or one of the, 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 the facts that makes Japan's involvement quite interesting is that Japan has been involved in counter-piracy in Asia uh, basically since 2001 and in 2006 basically with the Regional Cooperation Agreement on Combating Piracy and Armed Robbery Against Ships in Asia. Very long name, often abbreviated as RECAP, which is another uh, international regime basically that tries to do something similar, uh, uh, basically fighting uh, pirates and they have set up an intelligence center basically in office to collect data where pirates are and so on and so forth. Uh, so Japan can contribute in terms of more than just sending troops, so to say. They actually have experience in doing this and how to do this, how to deal with encounter piracy missions. So they started in 2009, this is just to give you an overview of what happened, with deployment of these troops, they changed the law uh, in the same year, and we'll talk about this in a moment, they begin their engagement with uh, UN organizations, and I'm, I will talk about this in, in a moment, the UN contact group and SHADE, um, the, uh, they, since in 2011, they uh, set up a so-called base in quotation marks, so it's, not, it's uh, not supposed to be called a base. It's a facility uh, in the Japanese sense uh, in Djibouti, so it's the first uh, um, out of area, basically the first uh, facility or you know, basically a, a base that Japan has outside Japan since 1945. Uh, uh, four Somali uh, pirates were actually brought to trial in Japan in 2011, and then in 2013, decisions actually to, for Japan, for Japanese ships, uh, Japan allowed actually to have armed guards, private armed guards on, on these ships. Um, and Japan uh, has become more involved in the, in the uh, piracy task force. So some of these things are kind of you know, new. I just wanted to give you a certain chronology in terms of you know, the increasing involvement of, of Japan. So beginning with basically military involvement, so to say. So the most important thing really where Japan got involved is, is a so-called escort mission. So this is the uh, Gulf of Aden, uh, and what uh, the international community basically has come up with is to escort ships coming through the Suez Canal and then uh, through the Gulf of Aden here and going into the Indian Ocean, into the Western Indian Ocean, and to have uh, basically a military ship in front of it or, on the, uh, uh, or in, in front of it and, 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 uh, uh, or on, on one or two sides of it and basically protecting ships by escorting them. So basically being very close. So if something would happen, they could call them and they could uh, uh, um, get to them quite quickly. This is done with uh, two ships. I will give you the numbers in a moment. But this is basically the, the, the core international mission. It's an escort mission in a so-called internationally recommended transit corridor, as it's called. So basically all the ships that go through this piracy-infested area have to basically inform uh, uh, the authorities first that they will uh, go through this area and so that they will then wait maybe for a couple of hours or for a day and then go together basically through this area so that they can be uh, protected. Um, there's not only Japan involved in, in this, of course, but as I said, about 30 other countries. But this is basically technically how, what they are doing. Um, Japan has sent uh, two uh, patrol air, airplanes, so a P P3C airplane, um, and I don't want to be too technical here, uh, but they, they fly about 140 flights, uh, flight hours uh, a month, which is really a lot, com especially compared to others. So Japan is really deeply involved. So this is the point I mentioned, I mentioned in the beginning. 
Japan is really not holding back here. Japan is deeply involved in this. 140 hours uh, a month is, is a very high number, and they have been consistently doing this since 2009, so 2015 this year. Uh, and what they do is they fly back and forth, provide information. Obviously, planes are, uh, planes are obviously much quicker than ships, and they fly back and forth and inform ships on the ground uh, about potential ships that might, you know, might have pirates on board. Um, so this is uh, planes. Uh, and the second thing is two ships. Japan has two uh, Japanese maritime aircraft destroyers there in the region with about 400 crew members uh, and eight uh, uh, Japan Coast Guard personnel. And I will come back to that in a moment why they are there, because you might wonder why, is, why are there Coast Guard people on, on these ships. Um, they're usually there for what, nine months, and then they're replaced, and they're sending them back and forth. Uh, but it's still quite an extend, you know, extended period of time. They're uh, between you know, about nine months, sometimes six months away from their family, so they're far away. Uh, but it's a good learning exercise, obviously, for the Japanese. That can, you know, as a proof of concept, we can do this. We can have a base, or we can have these ships uh, thousands of miles away from Japan and can you know, bring food and, and all the necessities to them for a really, really long time. So in, in a way, a proof of concept. Example, though, is here in the example between October 2000 December, and December 2013. Uh, um, uh, ships on the Japanese flags were basically zero. There was not a single ship in these three months. And this is very continued. This is just an example for these three months. Basically, there are very, very few and oftentimes hardly any ship with, on the Japanese flag in this area, So, which makes it very, very difficult for the Japanese uh, government kind of to uh, uh, find a good argument uh, for, you know, put, to protect ships of other countries, basically, and protect you know, other nationals, uh, which the Japanese government is not supposed to do under Article 9. Uh, there were foreign-owned ships uh, owned, by, uh, owned by Japanese companies um, and uh, other ships. So basically you can see 84 ships, or basically all the ships were basically uh, under uh, flags of another country and not the Japanese flag. So this is obviously uh, a problem. Um, so this is a legal issue. So when they sent these troops, and I'll briefly come uh, about this legal background, they were sent there under Article 82, uh, and again, I don't want to be too technical here, of the Self-Defense Forces Law, and I have a cute quote here of the law, which really sad, says, in case of the need of protection and security of human life or property at sea, the defense minister, after having obtained the approval of the prime minister, may order the self-defense forces to take necessary action at sea. This is a law from 1954, so this is the, the first year that we actually have self-defense forces in Japan. Um, but it's basically to protect Japanese or Japanese property or Japanese ships, not ships of other countries. So they could always do this, and this is basically the law they use, and they ran very quickly into the problem that none of these ships were actually Japanese-owned, so they had to do something. And then within the first two months, basically, they changed this law, uh, or they passed a law, which is the so-called the Law on Punishment, uh, on punishment and, uh, and measures against acts of piracy, which was passed in June 2009. So they began this in March 2009, and three months later, um, and I have a quote here, basically, the Minister of Defense, with approval of the Prime Minister now, takes necessary action uh, to uh, protect, uh, extraordinary measures to protect acts of piracy. So for the first time, piracy is actually uh, uh, mentioned here in this law. So that the, the first effect so on Japan is that they changed a law in Japan. 
Uh, on the international level, and I think I don't want to spend too much time is here, basically the United Nations uh, Security Council passed a resolution in 2008, uh, which basically calls upon all countries to become active in a counter-piracy mission. Uh, one which is particularly mentioned here, which interested me as a European in particular, is the mission, the European mission Atalanta. That, that's the European uh, mission here, and I will come back to that. Uh, there are basically three. The other one is the NATO, the NATO mission, and then there is a mission basically of, of other states. And I will give you uh, a graph in a, in, a, in a moment about this. So this is the, uh, the, uh, the, the domestic and the legal background of why Japan uh, can send troops there. Well, uh, if you have seen Captain Phillips, maybe the, the movie, uh, anyone has seen that movie? Right? Uh, so the, the, you saw basically American troops, right? And you have the idea that, well, the Japanese have their little ships, and if a Japanese ship or owned by Japan or where goods go to Japan, they would come with their little ships and they would eventually shoot them. Um, and Japan hasn't really done that at all so far. So Japan uh, is not chasing ships, they're not doing that. They're, they're doing this from helicopter and then informing basically other troops on the ground. Uh, they're not actively stopping ships. Uh, like Americans and other troops do all the time, just to make sure that they're just fishermen and no, not pirates. Jap Japanese are not shooting. They have not shot a single shot at any of the ships, and they have not arrested a single pirate in, uh, since 2009. So you wonder what are they actually doing there. They're just looking at what's happening on the ground. They're informing others, but they're not doing this. Um, one of the problems uh, with this, uh, one of the legal problems is that the Japanese self-defense forces uh, would not, are not allowed to shoot at any foreigner other than in a war. So the problem is the Japanese self-defense forces could not, well, even as a warning shot, shoot at any of the pirates. And you might think, well, isn't that what the self-defense forces are for? Uh, no, they're for protecting Japan, but not to protect. This is, this is where the Japanese Coast Guard comes in. The Japanese Coast Guard can actually do that. The Japanese Coast Guard can actually shoot of course, that's the, the last thing you would do, but they could actually shoot at pirates at sea. This is why all these, these, these ships have Coast Guard personnel on board, because they could do this. They haven't done this neither, but they could do this. Because you could imagine if the Japanese self-defense forces would shoot a national of another country, this could be a declaration of war, right? You have an army shooting at another civilian. It could be interpreted as, as an act of, of, of violence. Okay. Um, so they're not doing that at all. So Japanese are very, very active, but they're not doing any of these ships and uh, things and haven't done any of this. So as I said initially, what really interested me is not so much the technicality of how you find pirates and how they do this, but the, the collaboration here. And, the, and that Japan is collaborating with other troops, and so the international level of this. Uh, this looks quite, quite, quite complicated here, and I will uh, explain this just in a, in a few minutes. Basically, there are three main missions uh, of the coast of Somalia. One here on the left is the European mission, which is the UNNAFOR, so European Naval Forces mission of the coast of Somalia, headquartered here uh, north of London in uh, Northwood. Um, and uh, this is basically European troops. Obviously, J Europeans are very involved with it. This is, this is, mission, this is, this is uh, the, the first group of countries. Um, the second one here is basically uh, an old mission that's left over from, from NATO, basically, the Operation Ocean Shield, which is kind of, in a way, a leftover of the Afghanistan war, so to say. And the third one 
uh, here in the middle, this is the combined maritime forces, which is basically bringing other forces in. And this is where, in a way, Japan comes in. So what you have here on the left, you can see here, you know, as an example, some European forces, of course, for UNEF war. And then what you have is so-called independent deployers. And Japan is obviously one of those. Um, uh, others, and this is obviously another interesting aspect of this, is uh, China. China is there. Um, India is there, uh, Iran is there, of course Australia is there, and someone said the other day, basically every country in the world, almost every country in the world is there but North Korea, and they might be on the way any minute now. Well, not literally, but <laughs> almost, you know, about over 35 countries, and they're not always there constantly, some countries are there for half a year, and then they go back, another country takes over for the European mission in, in particular. So Japan comes in here really of, uh, as one of the 30 member states of, of, of these independent group. Um, so I know this looks a bit complicated here, but basically there are three main groups here, three main separate missions, so to say, that all fight piracy. Uh, quite a big mission, one, one would say. Uh, this is this, the same thing, just put in a slightly different graph, because I would like to focus on, on two aspects here. So again, this is the three missions, the UNEF war by the United States there, uh, the Horn of Africa, and then NATO Operation Shield. Um, and they combined this basically in the combined maritime forces. Um, um, and there are two aspects here. One is operational, how you organize these ships, and one is political. Um, and there are two organizations really where Japan has become really, really active. One is the so-called contact, contact group uh, of uh, piracy off the coast of Somalia, but you can't see this there. There's a contact group, basically, which is, in a sense, the political aim of this. Basically, they come together about every uh, six months, uh, usually in New York in the UN headquarter, and basically look at, so what can we do next? How can we deal with piracy? And it's not only, again, on the ground. It's capacity building and other things as well, but it's more the political side of this. Uh, and then the, uh, okay, the other one, I, I, I will have this, this graph back in a moment, actually, because I first want to talk about this group. Uh, so the, this contact group here, they meet, as I said, basically in New York. They have about 60 member countries. Um, Japan was once uh, for, for, for about half a year, actually, uh, even the, the, the chair of this meeting. They have plenary meetings there. Um, and they're basically, you know, basically government officials. So basically, uh, uh, MOFA officials uh, are sent there. Uh, and then go back to, to, to Tokyo and meeting other officials there to talk about, you know, what can we do there, uh, what can we do in the future. But the point here again is that Japan is a, reg is a regular member, Japan is regularly involved in this, Japan has become very reactive in an organization that is really doing something quasi-combat, you might, you might say. It's not really a combat mission, of course, but something that comes closest to, to that. So the political wing of that. Um, I think I will skip this one. This is how this is organized. Um, and uh, the legal background here as well. So, um, as I said, one interesting aspect where Japan really comes in is Japan's experience in uh, East Asia. Uh, this regional cooperation agreement recap in East Asia where, uh, this is in, where they, they copied many of these things that they have done, done in Asia. I think for time reasons I will just move on. So this is the political side of it, where Japan has become quite active. Uh, the second side is here is shade, uh, which is more the operational side. So if you have all these troops in all these countries, it's not so easy so that these ships do not run into each other, or you have all these ships in this one area and then there are no ships over there. So you have to organize basically where they are and what they're doing, how they talk to each other and how they train with each other. 
And this is done, uh, it's a very strange name actually, in the shared awareness and deconfliction uh, mechanism called SHADE. Uh, you have your picture where they're sitting on the table. Basically, uh, here you have the naval forces. So you have naval personnel, military personnel here. Uh, it's held every three months, so a bit more often here. Uh, and Japan has been involved in this as well since 2007. It's again, you know, if, you look, if you study the self-defense force in particular, you would say, you know, obviously they do training in Japan, they, they, they have exercises with US troops, they, they sometimes do have exercises with, with troops of a few other countries or in East Asia. Uh, but in this case, they have like every three months, they talk about something very specific. They obviously, you know, this is done in English. Uh, so they, they meet them, they might meet them after this meeting over, over a glass of wine. So there are you know, lots of opportunities for, ja for Japanese troops to get out of Japan basically and meet others. Um, and um, it's of course not always the same people, different people, and so they uh, uh, have lots of opportunities to, to learn from others, so to say. Uh, and the last one, so it's a silver graph, the last one is really the combined uh, 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 forces here. Uh, the combined maritime forces, also set up in 2009, uh, to bring these um, um, uh, uh, forces of other countries that are not the not the not the EU, not NATO, and not the US. Which of course uh, one of them is of, is of course Japan. It's a multilateral force of NATO, EU, and NAFOR. Uh, so the European forces, the command is rotated uh, between these forces. Um, and uh, very briefly, if you look at the, the, the so this is the, the com combined maritime forces, if you look at Japan's involvement here, quite significant, uh, in, re recently, in, in December 2013, uh, uh, a Japanese, uh, one of the Japanese ships, uh, the Samidari actually no, no, joined the combined maritime forces to actually go down the coast of Somalia. So they move away from just having, uh, being this, 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 uh, this corridor, but being with other troops, which is less, you know, uh, uh, more conflictual. There's, it's more likely that you are attacked actually off the coast of Somalia than in this small, uh, narrow strip of land off uh, the coast of Aden, uh, because there are so many other troops there. So uh, you have um, uh, a Japanese, the Japanese ship there, uh, so they have to follow basically commands basically given to given to them by the CM, uh, by, by by the task force there. Uh, Japan has sent a commanding officer. Uh, in, it's for the first time in 2013. So you have a Japanese self-defense, maritime self-defense officers the officer there. Uh, they have actually been quite uh, well. The, the, the first real event that happened was in January last year, uh, where, they, where a Japanese helicopter actually discovered the ship, and then they informed uh, uh, ships on the ground, and uh, four pirates were actually uh, then uh, apprehended. Um, the last year in this list, because of time reasons, the last year in this list is actually well, it's going to happen from, from May this year. So from May this year, Rear Admiral uh, Hiroshi Ito of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Forces will adopt the command of the Combined Task Force 151, and that's the Task Force Fighting Piracy. That's the first time in post-war history ever that you have a Japanese uh, Rear Admiral being in charge, basically, of an international mission uh, where he, well, he can't, of course, do whatever he likes, but he is in charge, basically, of commanding, not well, commanding or telling other ships what to do and how to proceed. So, which is another step, really, where Japan is not just at the receiving end of security, but where Japan gets really, really closely involved in this. 
uh, and, and this is going to happen from, from May this year. So this is just the latest development, and the, the Japanese defense minister was very happy in a press conference earlier this month uh, to make this announcement. Um, so uh, I mentioned to you this base in Djibouti, which is another uh, you know, important step for Japan. It's the first base, you know, based in quotation marks, that Japan has abroad since July 2011. Uh, so uh, it's basically a hangar of the uh, near, basically on the grounds of the Djibouti International Airport. And Djibouti basically is basically one city. There's Djibouti, the country, and then there's the city, and then there's the airport. Uh, that's really where Japanese are. You can see the where Djibouti is. There are about uh, 200 uh, maritime forces there and 50 ground forces, basically protecting the area there. Uh, if something would happen, it's very close to uh, Somalia, as you can see, in terms of you know Somalia. Somalia, obviously, there. Uh, so this small country there is Djibouti, and then everything uh, uh, to the south is, is Somalia. So potentially, something could happen. But nothing has ever happened. But it's the pride of the Japanese forces. It has really begun the pride of the Japanese forces. You have Japanese politicians going there regularly. Abe has been there. The defense minister was there, I think, at least twice. He was there a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. So it's, it's, it's a rare event. I mean, if you think about Japanese self-defense forces, they're in Japan, and they do these you, you know, peacekeeping things here and there, and helping others in refueling missions. But now they have their own base there. Uh, what I'm hearing is, and I'm, I, I, I'm planning to go there at one point, is that it's, you know, it's very well protected. And it's actually a relatively safe place. They have Japanese food, they have an onsen there, they have, they're very well taken care of, uh, actually. Uh, so, you know, I think, fight, yeah, twice around, you know, fighting pirates, yeah, you know. <laughs> you might think, you know, very dangerous. Obviously, you know, they, they fly from there and it's from the airport, so... Uh, but so far, uh, again, nothing has happened. Like, you know, fortunately, uh, no one, you know, not, no Japanese force has come to harm. It's ferociously hot. It's, that, that's true, though. That's, that's true. That is an issue. But of course, they have air conditioning. It's very well. They have built this base. Yes. Well, which was a little bit of a challenge in the first two years, at least, you know, because if you do everything from ships, that becomes more of a challenge. Uh, a little bit difficult for Japan was happening really also beginning of this year is that, well, in a way, the Chinese government has basically, you know, just negotiated the same deal, basically. The, the Chinese will have the same deal, which makes things even more interesting, I would say. Well, they could share the base. They could share the base, yeah. And, uh, well, you know, it's one of the reasons why I kind of found, found this interesting. You have this with others, if you have this with, uh, uh, with Chinese as well. At least on sea, they do, actually. So on sea... But all the, the, the people that I talked to, see, there are lots of things you can do on sea that you couldn't do on land, right? It's very, very different. It's very, very different. But anyway, they have this, this base there, and they have ministers there, so quite a, a proud achievement. Um, the other is, as I said initially, is capacity building. It's not all military. It's not all that. It's capacity building as well. And Japan is very, very deeply involved with that as well. It's, it's training coast guards. So you can imagine, you know, the coast guard of Somalia is very different from the Coast Guard of Britain or France uh, in terms of how well they are educated, how their sense of uh, um, uh, 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 corruption or you know, taking money and, and so on and so forth is. You know, and, and, and one of the Japan's aims, obviously, is you know, if you want to fight piracy, you, you can't be there forever. So you have to make sure that you train people on the ground so that they can take over eventually, like we do this, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan as well, of course. And so Japan has held meetings with Coast Guard staff in a number of countries there, 
And one of the main achievements is the, the Djibouti Regional Training Center, uh, which is officially actually set up by the IMO, which is the International Maritime Organization, but it's almost 100% funded by Japan. This is the center, so they built a nice school there, a nice building there. This is just a, I think it's almost finished now. This is still, I think, just a drawing there. So officially set up by the ILO, but actually almost completely funded by Japan. Japan basically built this and funded this entire thing here, this entire building uh, for you know, training of coast guards and, uh, and training of maritime forces in the, uh, in the region, because that's what, they, what, of course, Japan and other, other countries, of course, also really want. Japan is a major funder of this, um, and I, I looked at the memorandum of understanding of, of this, which I think is not uh, openly available and... and um, Japan actually demand, demanded that there will be a little plaque. He's saying, you know, this building is actually paid for by the people of Japan. <laughs> um, although officially it's not a Japanese institution, it's actually an international institution. It's only funded by Japan. Um, which brings us to funding. You know, how expensive is all this? And which is kind, kind of uh, um, interesting. Um, if you look at the official Japanese uh, funds for, for counter-piracy of the last couple of years, it's not actually so easy to get, get by these numbers. So this is basically for the ships, to have the ships there. Uh, it's not a massive number. It's about 3.4 billion, which is, which is in US dollars about 34 uh, million dollars, right, if it's 100 dollars, you know, roughly. That's not a major amount, and lots of, you know, when you look at uh, uh, budgeting, military defense budgeting, it's always kind of tricky to see how things are hidden in other budget, budgets. Because if you look over, so this is Japan, so obviously you can see an increase there in 2010, uh, and since then, especially uh, 2010 when they built uh, the base, and this is basically what the base cost, basically, about 40 million US dollars a year, which is not too much, actually. It's basically one thousandth of the Japanese defense budget. So, not really that significant, one might say. But overall, the international community, all the countries, US, uh, the Europe spends about 3.2 billion US dollars uh, every year on this, which is, if you look at each attack, it's 139 million US dollars per attack. Right? You might wonder, that's not really worth it. I mean, every life is, of course, you know, uh, <laughs> worth, you know, you, 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 you can't pay a price on this. But, of course, that's, it's a major amount. And you wonder why, you know, if it's really true that Japan only spends this little amount. And, and talking to experts, it's, a lot of these things are hidden. Uh, I don't know if this is moving. Actually, this was, sorry, this was supposed to move there. So the construction of the building, the land lease of Japan is about 40 million a year. Um, but as I said, uh, to, to build this training center, Japan basically spent, which is called, and, and the framework of the Djibouti uh, Code of Conduct, which is basically a, a code which, a, which should uh, lay the foundation of how uh, maritime forces uh, should uh, uh, behave. And uh, Japan is the major financial contributor to that. And some of us who study Japan's uh, security policy over the last 10 years or so, it's not uncommon that Japan uh, spends a lot of money. Uh, but in this case, they also uh, send troops. Uh, and compared to other countries, uh, Japan is the, the largest spender for uh, capacity building on the ground in particular. So each country spends, you know, has to spend the money for their own military. But for capacity building, this, these are the numbers from 2013. Japan spent about 14.6 million US dollars. It's not, it's not really 
a huge amount if you think about this in terms of security and the, the amount of some other countries are much, much smaller, but still Japan really spends a lot of money on this. Okay, so what are the results of all this in the end? So I want to, to, to uh, divide this into a results of all this money, all this capacity building, all these troops and all this basically on two things. One is on, on maritime privacy overall, so have they been successful, and the other is really on Japan itself. So uh, on maritime, maritime piracy, uh, they have been very successful. Uh, the graph, I, the, the one I showed you in the beginning of my talk was really until 2011. I cut this off there. This is over the last four years, uh, last three years, and you can see a very sharp decrease. So it works, right? And one could say, you know, it worked. Uh, the number has gone down drastically. At the same time, actually, the number of piracy attacks in Southeast Asia has gone up at the same time. So this is more a problem. At the same time, also, which is not in this graph, piracy attacks in, uh, in West Africa have decreased quite significantly. So on the other side of Africa have uh, increased quite significantly. But Japan is probably not very inclined to go there. Uh, Japan doesn't have any... any, any uh, uh, not many ships, not that many Japanese ships that would go. So it has declined, so very successful. This, is, this was in 2011, and this is in 2014. Very, very few attacks, very, very successful. Um, um, so it has worked, and one could say, you know, especially when you look at, at this number, we should all go home, right? What's the point of still being there? But all the countries, including the Europeans and the Japanese, have decided we will stay there for another year, they really have to extend this another year, another year. And they're going to continue this. And you might wonder why. Uh, there was, the argument is, of course, well, piracy will come back. If we go back, it will, it will come back. That, that's the main reason. Okay, it has declined. Um, what effect does this have on international cooperation? So, as I said, Japan is working on, in the contact group. Japan is constantly working with other countries. And the problem with these called regimes, this is not the United Nations. This is not something established. This is really something set up ad hoc, really, after, the, uh, after piracy had increased, these are called multi-stakeholder meetings. So um, whether it's the, the contact group, for example, where it's not only states, it's also uh, owners of ships uh, and uh, basically stakeholders of shipping companies. Of course, they have a huge interest in decreasing uh, piracy. Piracy is expensive. Piracy is not just expensive if your ship is pirated and you have to pay a ransom. Piracy is always expensive because the payment that you have to pay to an insurance company increases quite significantly, of course, with piracy. That's a problem. So the more piracy there is, the more they have to pay for insurance. And so they obviously want to uh, outsource this, so to say, and you know, want governments to pay for this so that piracy goes down. And it has. But it's a multi-stakeholder, it's a solution-oriented, it's kind of non-political, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not about Senkaku, it's not about Japan, China, it's mainly about something that everyone agrees. And some would say, you know, everyone hates pirates. It's easy, right? Everyone basically agrees, it's very uncontroversial. There's not a global debate like in, in the Iraq war. This is very, very different. So, um, but it's also an informal decision-making, and I'm, I'm looking into this for my research a bit more in detail. It's got an interesting environment. Japanese, and I guess all of you study Japanese governments and government officials usually have a hard time in, in organizations that are not well 
you know, well-oiled machine, you know, where there's a classical, there's an agenda, there's a client achievement, there's exactly clear what's going, like the United Nations maybe, but in this case, it's relatively informal as far as these kind of international regimes go, it's informal. Um, it's an opportunity, of course, for Japan for trust building. As I said, my interest was with other countries other than uh, the United States. Joint, oper joint operation, joint exercises, so they have exercises on sea where they train with each other, so that's good. So it did indeed have an uh, in, in, in effect on Japan as well. So if you look at international cooperation, they have these nice pictures of relatively frequent visits of European forces. So in all these pictures, you can see Japanese and uh, foreign uh, uh, European uh, commanders, the meeting on ships. Here they shake hands, they have troops meeting, on a, you know, not, not all of them, but, but in a certain number because they visit each other's ships. So lots of opportunities for engagement, which I found interesting. This is what we, with the EU here, another nice pictures. You don't see this this often, you know, British, French, or something, even Russian next to, sending them next to Japanese. Japanese do not have that many opportunities to, opportunities to do that. Uh, the same here with the uh, combined maritime forces. So the Japanese, as I said, are deeply in, involved in, in this as well. And as I just said, Japan is actually now from May taking over the chairmanship only for three or four months because they're rotating. But still, it's quite a significant uh, development here. Um, uh, development in terms of EU-Japan, I just looked at the last uh, EU-Japan summit in 2013, and they all mentioned this. You know, is this... When you look at EU, Japan in particular, you know, they're far away from each other. The United States, Europe doesn't really want to get involved in, in defending Japan, you know, against China or North Korea or in any other way. Uh, but in this case, uh, they have an opportunity to work with each other. And they all mentioned this here, the uh, strengthen, so the European um, uh, Commission wants to strengthen counter-piracy capabilities in Somalia and its neighboring countries, cooperation and projects in Djibouti, so with Japan, this is the EU-Japan summit. And the last one, uh, late last year, Idris welcome and support the prospect of expanded role of Japan. You know, this is really works for, for Abe here. They really want, the Europeans want Japan to do more, promoting, uh, sustaining global peace and security, a set of its policy and proactive contribution to peace. Right? So for Abe's proactive contribution to peace, Piracy is one element here, right? It's definitely an important element because it's so uncontroversial. It's not China. It's not, you know, all these, these, these sticky issues. Um, the Euro so the EU really like, likes to see that. It will continue to see close cooperation about counter-piracy, counter uh, joint piracy exercises. So the Europeans and the Japanese in general are very interested. The same is true, actually, for, for the UK. So being in the UK here, so the UK and Japan last year, Abe was in Britain, as you probably all know, in May last year, uh, signed a dynamic partner, a partnership, strategic partnership for the 21st century, also mentioned maritime security and, and, and tackling piracy here. Uh, and uh, last month in January, uh, there was the first 2 plus 2 meeting. Uh, Japan doesn't have that many of those, so basically the two foreign and defense ministers of Japan and uh, the UK uh, met earlier here. Um, and one of those um, uh, things that were mentioned in, in the final uh, 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 press conference was also continue to work together in the field of maritime security, piracy and armed robbery through Japan's assuming the command of the CTF-151, uh, which I said earlier. So 
Uh, and finally, also uh, NATO as well. So NATO is interested here as well. Uh, uh, Professor Abe was in, in Brussels last year in the visual partnership and cooperation here. And again, these are some quotes here from, from the last meeting. Uh, through cooperation, increasing Japan's participation in NATO partnership cooperation. Obviously, Japan is not a member of NATO, but Japan is one of the security partners of NATO. Participation of NATO exercises, collaborating on mutual capabilities. So this all plays into the bigger game. Basically, Japan wants to get uh, more involved with other countries, and, and the Europeans and NATO is one of them. Again, not to become a member. Uh, that will probably not happen in the foreseeable future. But uh, Maritime cooperation is a good tool uh, in achieving something that's really on the ground, right? And, and one reason, again, why I, why I looked into this is it's not just political. It's not just handshakes. It's not just, you know, we are going to, you know, mutual uh, collaboration. So the, the usual diplomatic talk that you usually hear, you know, and something will happen in the future. This is real. This is really something that's really happening on the ground. Um, okay, effects on Japan. Okay, what effects did this counter-piracy mission have on Japan? And I would say quite significantly. Um, the two main documents that Japan... Uh, okay, I had this graph first, right? I mean, the, the, in terms of how counter-piracy mission influenced Japan, uh, the domestic influence here um, is on the national security guidelines, and I will have another slide on this. Uh, and so on, on a number of fields here, and, and the pre in, in, in a way this some you know, pressure, indirect pressure coming from the EU, from NATO, from, from shipping companies, like BIMCO is the organization of international uh, shipping owners. Um, uh, domestic shipping companies as well, obviously they have a strong, so Japanese domestic shipping companies have a strong interest uh, in fighting this. Uh, about the first, uh, which is a national security strategy, which Japan under Prime Abe passed in December 2013. Um, and they also mention here and say Japan will play a leading role through close cooperation with other countries. And my point is here, with other countries. In maintaining and developing open and stable seas, take necessary measures, including anti-piracy operation to uh, ensure safe maritime transport, um, quality of bilateral and multilateral cooperation on maritime security. So basically these organizations that I just mentioned, Japan is... Uh, uh, very interested in, in deepening this uh, even more in the future, and the national security strategy is, is one of the two uh, core documents uh, to signify that. Uh, the second one is, of course, the National Defense Program Guidelines that were also uh, passed in December 2013, and they also mentioned this here, the SDF will work to enhance transport and deployment capabilities, right? If you have troops in Somalia or you have a base in Djibouti, Transport is a major problem, is a major problem here. Uh, Trump's in Africa and other remote locations. So one might wonder, you know, where is Japan going next, right? It's a good lesson, right? They are in Djibouti. They have shown that they can maintain troops uh, thousands of miles away for, for six years now. Um, so as a proof of concept, Japan can really do this. And so next time, we don't know where the next time is and where exactly, but at least Japan is ready. Uh, so more effective use of the SDF operational facilities in Djibouti. So uh, one of the uses that we already see is not only really for, for fighting piracy, it's also, uh, it's basically became a hub uh, for bringing troops into South Sudan. So South Sudan is a PKO mission. It's the other main mission of the Japanese Self-Defense Forces. Um, 
um, right, this is the, the Special Measures Act to secure vessels of piracy. This is just, you know, now Japanese uh, self-defense forces can have troops, uh, uh, can have uh, armed guards on their ships. Uh, I think I will uh, not talk about this, this, this more here. Um, Okay, I had this here before, so I would skip this for, for time reasons to come to end. So what are, what are the reasons, again, for Japan to be so active and spending so much, time, so much money on this? Um, as I said, Japan brings a lot to the table here, their, their recap um, experience. Uh, in a way, they, they, they followed, at least in 2009, other countries because they were already there or on the verge of being there. And so Japan said, well, if they are there, we also have to be there. Uh, I could say, you know, it's a good... Uh, although it started in 2009, not under Prime Abe, as I said, but it's a good um, tool, so to say, to, you know, we can work there. Uh, it's one of these gray zones that, you could, that Abe uh, famously mentioned in his uh, press conference uh, when he talked about collective self-defense last year. Uh, and he gave some examples here, but uh, where Japan could use this and say, you know, you see, it, it's it's ridiculous. We need to protect other, other ships of other countries in this case, and we have to protect other countries and other facilities under certain circumstances. We cannot protect Japan without, under, in some circumstances, protecting the facilities of other countries as well. And this is a good example for that, and as I said, a very uncontroversial one. Uh, strengthening links with Africa, as I said, for maybe the UN peacekeeper operations. Um, uh, I think I will, I will skip this one for, for time reasons as well. So a number of uh, you know, uh, 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 events here. And then uh, finally, I think what this kind of boils down to what, what I'm seeing in the beginning of this is really a trajectory uh, where Japan is increasingly trying to build uh, relationships we call in new security alignments. Uh, there's a whole alignment theory, which is not alliance, right? It's not like the U.S.-Japan alliance. It's not to replace the U.S.-Japan alliance at all, not at this place and probably not for a very long time in the future. But it's something where Japan is looking into uh, working closer, more closely with the EU, as I said, UK, France, and it's particularly of interest here, NATO as well. And of course, with India and Australia as well. India and Australia have become very, Australia in particular in recent weeks, selling Japanese submarines to potentially to, to Australia um, as well. Um, and the Japanese, as well, the last slide actually, the Japanese uh, uh, foreign minister, uh, Kishida, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, actually a week ago, in the Japanese diet, he said Japan will reinforce its multi-layered cooperative relations with individual European countries, the European Union, NATO, and others. In particular, we will promote cooperation, which is in developing in the areas of security and defense with the United Kingdom and France. So, uh, as I said, Japan, I think, is really on, not on the verge, but in, in the process of developing closer ties, security ties in this case. They have ties, of course, but security ties with countries other than the United States. Thank you very much.